Hello and welcome to another episode of Brave UX. I'm Brendan Jarvis, Managing Founder of The Space In Between, the home of New Zealand's only specialist evaluative UX research practice and world-class UX lab, enabling brave teams across the globe to de-risk product design and equally brave leaders to shape and scale design culture. Here on Brave UX, though, it's my job to help you to put the pieces of the product puzzle together. I do that by unpacking the stories, learnings, and expert advice of world-class UX design and product management professionals. My guest today is Benny Zuffolini. Benny is a product design director at Pearson, a 176-year-old world-leading education company that's helping people to achieve their potential through physical and digital learning and assessment experiences. If that sounds familiar, then you would be right. It's the same company that my previous guest, Trip O'Dell, works for. And yes, Trip is how I came to meet Benny. Anyway, back to Benny. Prior to joining Pearson, Benny was the head of design and experience at Zego, a UK-based insurtech startup that simplifies the way businesses insure their vehicles, whether they have hundreds of them or whether they're a single self-employed driver. Benny was also the UX manager at Vonage, an American cloud communications company that was founded in 2001 to disrupt traditional telcos by bringing voice over IP technology to families and small businesses. Fast forward 17 years and Benny would join Vonage, now a billion dollar company with dozens of digital products and a globally distributed team. While at Vonage, Benny is widely credited for being one of the two design leaders who enabled the successful creation and rollout of the design system, unifying the company's digital product experience and bringing greater efficiency and scalability to design and development efforts. No small feat. Recently identified as neurodiverse, Benny has been actively raising awareness of neurodiversity and its many unique aspects and advantages in the workplace. Passionate, purposeful, and professional, I've been looking forward to speaking with Benny today. Benny, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me and thank you for the intro. No, it's great to have you here, Benny. I yeah. I really did enjoy preparing for today. And <laughs> one of the things that I thought was a highlight of this preparation was that you're a self-described mother of bunnies. And one of yes. your bunnies, yes, so that's true. Good. One of your bunnies, Steve, which is a great name, by the way, for a bunny. He even guest starred in a recent exercise video series. What is with the bunnies? You know, why not cats or dogs? Why bunnies? <laughs> Well, that's actually quite funny. Uh, after university, I went back to live with my mom for a little bit, as uh, sometimes people have to do when uh, you're in Italy and uh, salaries are not very high for <laughs> a starter. So I love my mom. However, uh, going back at 22 to live just with her was a little bit mental. So we decided that we needed a buffer and uh, she agreed to a guinea pig. I, I went to the pet shop and they had a beautiful guinea pig, which I named Harvey, but also an incredibly beautiful bunny that I had to take home. And I called Holly, thinking it was a girl. Turns out it was a boy. We called him Princess for about six months. In any <laughs> case, that just started it. Then I moved to London and I took him with me. I got him a companion here and from that moment on it's kind of you signed up your life to to bunnies because uh, they live in pairs and uh, you never want one to be alone so yeah i am at my third and fourth bunny at the moment steve is uh steve is number three okay and so you have three at the moment or, or you you've you've, no, you've got four it's two uh it's too unfortunately oh. they've uh yeah mm. they they don't live as long as i would like but i aim to give them as good a life as i can steve is um is also a funny story because he's i'm his third home because he was considered to be a biter he's the absolute sweetest little like bunny boy i've ever i've ever seen he constantly wants cuddles he just uh he doesn't like children <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> Maybe it was the home environment that was actually the problem, and 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 not Steve. Yeah, that that's the idea. But yeah, Steve likes featuring in my uh, general endeavors. He's uh, both in my exercise videos for um, Autism Awareness Week, and also 
in a video that I did at Zigo to celebrate uh, neurodiversity in the workplace. There was an actual camera crew that time and they were quite happy when they saw just a bunny hopping around and took a bunch of shots. They let me have the outtakes afterwards. I really appreciated that. <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. And I do want to come to your time at Zigo as well as uh, the awareness that you've been raising for neurodiversity. Uh, but before we do that, I did sure. want to speak with you a little bit about your personal story around neurodiversity. And I understand, Benny, that you were recently identified. And I'm, I, I want to be um, careful with my language here because I think I used the word diagnosed when speaking with Trip, and that wasn't a word that he was comfortable with. So do just oh. correct me if need be as I go through yeah. today. Yeah. So as identified, you're, you're comfortable with that term? Well, I, no, I'm comfortable with diagnosed because... Diagnosed? Um, yeah, I'm comfortable with either. Okay. I guess, yeah, it, it's it's part of my personal story. I, I, I knew it beforehand, but it was only since I got officially diagnosed that I felt that I could speak about it. Right. Yeah, and I was going to ask you about that because, and I'll just quote you now, you've said that, and, and now I am quoting you, I've always had trouble understanding the rules of life. To some people, I seem rude. I always, I was always anxious. And then you went on to say, it was only when I was diagnosed that I finally understood why I think differently and how to explain it to others. And that was actually from that video that you mentioned about Zigo where, yeah. where Steve featured yeah. and they gave you the outtakes. How do you explain your neurodiversity to others? It's, it's a bit easier than I thought it would be, probably because I waited long enough for it to be at least available on Google. But what I explain is being neurodivergent is having your brain wired in a way that is slightly different from the majority of people, sometimes slightly, sometimes more. But in any case, it's it's a rewiring and uh, we're all different from each other. Uh, we're all different from, uh, all humans are different from each other. However, the rewiring tends to mean that there are some things that come very easy for me that may be a struggle for the majority of people and vice versa. There are some things that are harder. And especially when it comes to interactions, I ask a lot of questions because I need to form a mental picture of things. So I recognize that that can come across as challenging for some. And uh, I have had my share of misunderstandings and, uh, conflict, especially work life, but not just. And also the, the, the fact that I am not very good at taking hints. I, um, I can sense energy. I can sense when someone is uncomfortable, but I don't understand. I don't understand second meanings and I don't, I can't easily read between the lines of someone speaking. Because I'm not reading, I guess. It's just human communications are made a little bit harder, uh, to be fair, especially since I came to the UK, because Italians tend to be a little bit blunter. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was actually, we were speaking off air, right, about how you love to do acting. And of course, the pandemic has put a bit of a uh, break on that for you personally. But you were telling me how the uh, the acting means that you almost have to set your own uh, beliefs and, and a way of seeing the world to the side in order to embrace the character. And you have to learn how to, I think you said sort of um, something to the effect of moderate your emotions so you're not over embellishing the emotion that you're trying to project and that that had helped you in work context to navigate some of those areas where differences in, in sort of neuro, I wouldn't say neuro ability, I'm not quite sure what the word is here, but that mismatch when you're you're not quite getting a colleague and they're not quite getting you. So t tell us a little bit about that. Like how has acting, how have you used your skills as an, as an actor to navigate the, the workplace more effectively? Sure. I think something that became clear to me, especially in my latest acting studies, which were at Identity School of Drama, which is a, a part-time drama school. So very professional. Uh, I learned from very, very good people. What I understood truly is that it doesn't, truly, it doesn't really matter what I mean if my audience didn't get it. In, uh, in acting, it's, it's about the emoting if I'm uh, if I'm reading a script and I'm trying to convey an emotion, 
it's it doesn't matter that I think I expressed sorrow if the entire audience gets anxiety. It just uh, it only matters what the audience sees in the end and the majority of the audience. So that has helped me come to terms with the fact that it's not personal and it's the same in conversation with humans. Ultimately, if my objective is for what I'm saying to come across and be understood by the other person, I have to convey it and you know, you can have two people shouting at each other, I'm right, no, I'm right, no, this is what I meant, but it comes down to, did the other person understand what you mean? If they didn't, then you said it wrong. We've certainly had uh, a, a lot of examples recently around the world of, of people shouting each, at each other um, <laughs> yes. because they've got a fundamental basis of misunderstanding going on. It sounds like you are f- fairly pragmatic about the way you view how to navigate and achieve the outcomes that you're seeking to achieve. Yes. Uh, And that's something I can't say that I was born like that. I definitely had my share of uh, getting really angry at feeling misunderstood, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That is probably where I'm saying the diagnosis made a big difference for me. It gave me grounding and stability. It made me feel like I didn't have anything to prove, which means pride is not that important. It's 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 okay if uh, if I'm expressing myself in a way that I think is fine, but someone else doesn't. It doesn't mean I'm a bad person, but it does mean that they are not going to listen to me. I understand. Yeah, I understand that neurodiversity is a a wide, encompasses a wide variety of people with different forms of neurodiversity, and that often people that aren't uh, diagnosed or identified or have a more, I think it's neurotypical way of the way in which their brain works, there can be that disconnect that you've spoken about that can occur. It seems that the onus to address that disconnect is unfairly placed on the person who is neurodiverse. It seems to me at least that people who are neurodiverse have to put in more effort in order to be understood than perhaps people who are on the neurotypical end of that spectrum to understand those people. I unfortunately, yes, I do feel the same. And that's where my younger self was angry most of the time and it's not like it's any more fair now it's still it's still not great and uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't presume to advise other neurodiverse people to just suck it up and uh, <laughs> and 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 conform absolutely and I don't conform I try to find my own way to stay true to my personality but send my message across it's complicated I do wish we lived in a world where this sort of stuff is taught in school and and so things like the ladder of inference and coming down from uh, from the ladder of your own beliefs and uh, and filters and just talk about what you've observed and ask questions make less assumptions all of that would be ideal i decided to just model it and hope that uh, someone will pick it up and then use it themselves. So when when you disclose or when somebody finds out that you are neurodiverse, and I believe that the way that you've explained your diagnosis in the past is it was a level one autism? Yeah, I'm autistic. It's um, The term is uh, level one dash mild, <laughs> whatever that means. Uh, it's, it's not quite a scale, but it, yeah, it's definitely, it should mean that it doesn't affect my day-to-day life too much, uh, or it doesn't impede me from working and uh, having a normal life. Yes, so that's... So when people find out about that, however they find out about it, what do you, like, I don't know if this is the right way to frame this question, but what ideally, how ideally would they be with that? Like, yeah. what is the gap at the moment between how 
people that aren't conscious of this are behaving when they find out about this and what, what they would ideally be doing that we're not doing as a society or as a workforce right now? You know what? Um, that's a very interesting question because lately I find myself telling, speaking openly to more and more people and usually everyone has an amazing reaction when I say it. I think the most clumsy reaction that I received was someone saying, oh, that's brilliant. I, I, I think my nephew is autistic. I'm like, <laughs> okay, <laughs> sure, I mean, it's fine. Um, but I've also spoken to you know, recruiters in the past who would say, yeah, sure, does it uh, let me know if you have any special requirements or any preferences for the interview process, for example. And yeah, that, that was exactly it. Just treat it as a, a bit, like I said, hey, I'm in a different time zone. <laughs> uh, so I might have some. Or hey, or, yeah. I'm a vegetarian. So I don't want to downplay the importance of neurodiversity. So this is definitely not what sure. I am getting at when I say that. But I, I've heard you talk about it as, and you're, as I said before, you're very pragmatic. You seem to be um, someone who is very focused on the outcomes. And I get the sense, and I could be wrong here, but that you you all, almost want to it to not be a big deal. For it it just to be understood and accepted, um, but not be something that is is a way in which you're treated or put out uh, on your own. Um, Mm. And and I get the sense maybe that would make you feel more uncomfortable than if people just reacted the way they have. So, okay, that's another very interesting thing. It just made me think that (sighs) reality is there's absolutely no issue when I tell people that I'm autistic. Everyone, in this day and age, everyone reacts pretty well. There is, however, it's more afterwards. Like, you get to know someone, you tell them, hey, by the way, I'm autistic. They're like, yeah, great, cool, good to know. But then a month later, two months later, you're having a discussion or a debate or or an argument. And that's the part where they forget or they don't understand truly the implications of what you disclosed and they start interpreting your behaviors through the lenses of what's common in society to give you a practical example i had a manager once that it would upset him that i asked a lot of questions because uh, he eventually told me that he felt like i didn't trust him like i thought he wasn't good at his job because i he, he interpreted it as uh, me feeling like i need to check on him a few months later i got diagnosed and i told him about it and he was very open yet the next time i asked him more questions he again got upset and uh, and thought that i wasn't trusting him I had explained to him that I just need to ask questions and also just in general, I will check on uh, things just just to sanity check. It's not impersonal. However, in the moment of high emotions, I don't know if he forgot or if it wasn't or if he didn't even just generally cross his mind. But those are the moments where it gets complicated. It's not enough to disclose it. Those different, those uh, mismatches, like you said, they're subtle and they come out over time, it's all about interpretation. People might not even think that there's something odd in what I did. They might just think I was being passive aggressive <laughs> or, uh, or, or I was uh, trying to downplay something or um, discredit uh, because I said, because I made a blunt comment, for example. It's, it's way trickier. So it's hard, it's hard to, so it seems like it's hard for people to attribute the behavior to autism versus just things that humans sometimes do if they're under pressure or having a bad day or or whatever but that misattribution or that lack of remembering what it is that you've previously said to them about who you are and why you do certain things the way you do them that seems like that's quite quite confronting and quite hurtful and doesn't really give you the confidence in the people that and I'm very specifically talking about this manager and, and that manager and in, in the sense that they truly understand you and they're able to, you know, you're able to meet them and they're able to meet you where you both are. Yeah, it's, it's uh, the hurtful part is that you get judged over an intention that you never had. You, uh, you get judges having intentionally misbehaved or were intentionally disrespectful when actually that was the furthest thing from your mind. We get 
we get told how to be in society from a very early age and it's it's part of education that we learn to interpret certain sets of behaviors and give them a connotation and no one ever bothered to explain that actually it's not a one size fits all if someone like I'll give you a scenario. Let's say I'm talking to our, my entire team about the next project. I ask if anyone has uh, any concern. No one says anything. After the call, one of them sends me a link, maybe, that explains how we should have handled uh, that conversation better. That sounds very passive aggressive. Or it's they didn't know how to word what they were thinking and they thought they would give me an example instead but in a absolutely pacific and well-intentioned way. The second is not the conclusion that people tend to go <laughs> or even consider. I have heard somebody describe this on another podcast that I was listening to, and it wasn't in the context of neurodiversity. It was in the context of uh, relationships yeah. um, between two loving individuals. And Maybe this is giving people too much of an insight of the things that I listen to. I promise everybody that things are okay with my wife and I. At the moment, we're all good. But I was listening to this. I think it was actually a Tim Ferriss episode, and he was interviewing uh, a psychologist. And the psychologist was saying that there's a space in between people when we communicate. And each of us in our, in our own heads are telling ourselves a story yeah. of why the other person did or said or behaved a certain way. And the longer we leave ourselves to tell ourselves that story without actually verbalizing it to the other person to just to check whether or not our story in our head is actually what was intended, the more harm can creep into that relationship and people can start to believe things that just aren't true. So when you were saying that about your colleague giving you that feedback another way, you've got a choice almost as to what the story is you tell yourself. And I mean, mm -hmm. you as an every, everybody. Yeah. So how um, it seems from what you're saying or from what I'm hearing that you connect with that, you know, how, how important are those stories that we're telling ourselves and how important is, is it to get, this is a loaded sure. question, but how important is it to sort of get that story out there laid bare for people to see so you can actually have an adult conversation about what's going on you said a few things there that i absolutely love one is adult conversation and the other is putting the story out there there's actually a chapter in Brene brown's dare to lead i do love Brene brown as does half of the world she just has an incredible way of explaining certain <laughs> concepts she she talks about actually a, a a fight or an almost fight that she had with her husband uh because of a story that she made up in her own head and how he was actually very calm and so he just asked her okay walk me through what you were thinking and she tells him what she was thinking and he's like, okay, that's kind of dumb. <laughs> like, how does that sound realistic? And she's like, yeah, no, no, I'm saying it out loud. It doesn't sound realistic. Okay, let's, uh, let, let's, let's reconnect and start from scratch. And her advice from there is to just go for the rumble, go with your shitty first draft, which is actually a reference she makes of uh, someone else. Like, just say what you're thinking express what you're seeing. Now, the problem there is it takes a lot of uh, conf confidence and like quiet confidence and the ability to be vulnerable with other people in order to do that. I know that if it were for me, I would approach every conversation with, okay, this is what I heard. Did you mean that? But not everyone is going to react well to that. <laughs> yeah. And this is what you were saying earlier about wouldn't it be nice to live in a world where we learn about these things from an early age and that part of the expectations that we put on our young adults and children is an expectation that they'll be able to have more mature conversations with each other as they encounter situations where other people don't see the world the same way that they do. And I know that sounds very fanciful. But but I don't, I also, on the other hand, I don't understand why we couldn't, knowing what we know mm -hmm. now about people and how different people are, why we couldn't actually place more emphasis in this, on this in our education. It would be fantastic. It would be, it would be, it would be absolutely fantastic. And like you're saying, it's actually very achievable. It's just about 
starting to build the shared vocabulary so and 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 start dropping some of those expectations i think this is actually very very important in the uh, hierarchy in in a company for example the, the levels of seniority and how they are approached sometimes the fact that it's it's perfectly fine from for a senior person to have made a mistake and for a junior person to point that out. Those are things that are still not quite widely accepted. And I think it's mainly because we were taught that they were wrong to do. And so we don't have the tools or the vocabulary to even handle that situation gracefully. There's an immediate instinct to to defend ourselves and to put other people in their place. But it's all a social construct. Like It doesn't have to go like that. <laughs> It's status. A lot of that seems to me at least to be attributed to status and some of the protections that status affords people in hierarchies where they've gained that status. I'm also remembering a study that I was reading about where they were looking at outcomes in operating theatres in various hospitals and the types of cultures that existed around the the theatre itself in particular and some cultures had a, a fear-based status culture where the surgeon ruled the roost and if anyone questioned her decision then it was potentially career limiting mm -hmm. and therefore people stayed quiet when they were observing things that were potentially uh, harmful to patients on the operating table and other hospitals that had better outcomes for patients um, were found to have a better culture where it was actually encouraged for anybody, even the orderly that may be in the mm. theater to put their hand up and pull that, pull that, pull that alarm yes. bell if they felt that they needed to. And that like comes back to what you were saying before about in order to do that from a cultural perspective an organizational perspective, you need to have the trust that, you can be confident in doing that and you won't pay a yeah. price uh, to yourself for doing that, that it's actually encouraged. And I would also say this: it's important for people to feel, like you said, safe that they can do that and they won't suffer repercussions. And I also have a lot of empathy for their superiors and I wish everyone felt comfortable enough to know that it doesn't take anything away from their experience or seniority or status to be wrong sometimes. I think actually what you said about the pulling the alarm bell, I was talking about it with my fiance recently. He uh, was looking into the story of Kanban, uh, Kanban boards and what Kanban generated from, which was, uh, uh, I think, an autom automotive factory, although I don't remember which one. But they, they did have um, a rule where an, anyone... Uh, in the warehouse with the conveyor belt, anyone could pull the chain that would stop the whole thing if they saw something happening that shouldn't have happened. And that was, like you said, the orderly, the executives or the mailman. And that, yeah, that, that's how that's how we avoid mistakes, big ones at least, and uh, just destroying things. And I mean, that comes back to what we were talking about, about expectations that society places upon us. And I know from listening to you describe your diagnosis and how you felt uh, after that, I get the sense that there was a bit of relief in that and that you were able to now, uh, I think you said you had, you found a foundation from which you could actually um, mm -hmm. build on. But something else you said that I, that really um, struck me and being male, it's not something that I have really thought about at length, but I, I definitely connected with it when I heard you say it, and I'm paraphrasing now, but you've said that women are often judged by much harsher social standards than men, which is which is yeah. evident. You don't have to look too hard for those kind of expectations and standards, which has in part led to fewer girls being identified as having autism than boys. And often those um, diagnoses come uh, when, woman, when, when, when the girls are yeah. no longer girls, they're actually women much later in life. Now, I was curious about what you said after this, though, which was that you don't wish that you were identified or diagnosed sooner. Why not? Uh, I guess part of it is because I can't imagine uh, my life going any differently from how it went. Um, part is also because, I, I mean, in an ideal world, if I had been diagnosed early, also, my family would have been given the tools to deal with that and raise me as 
good as they possibly could. But in reality, if I had been diagnosed early, as in myself, born in 1988, I think I would just have been treated differently and have probably have a lot of opportunities taken away. Whereas what actually happened is that I was considered to be socially weird, but really smart. It wasn't well balanced, but it was a foundation to at least always be confident that I was recognized as being intelligent. And I just apparently did stupid things in social environments, (laughs) which has then given me the confidence to pursue studying English well enough to move to the UK and there to take some opportunities uh, and some leaps. I I am afraid that if I was diagnosed early, uh, it would have been all different. Yeah, and I suppose that's what I was trying to touch on earlier, where there's this tension looking from the outside, and I suppose, which is from a privileged position, but there's this tension between wanting people to understand who you are and how that means that you show up in the world in certain situations, but also the the social price, the fear around people knowing that. And so something that I wanted to ask you about was there's a growing <clears throat> movement at the moment for companies to do a better job when it comes to understanding neurodiversity and ensuring that neurodiverse people have the environment and the tools that they need to be successful. And this is something that I spoke with Trip about and Trip was very uh, passionate about fighting the organization, procurement and other areas of the organization um, when he was at Amazon to make sure that people that he was hiring who were neurodiverse had the tools that they needed to be successful. But there seems to be this risk here and I don't really know mm. what I'm getting at here, but there seems to be a risk of it's yes, it's a positive thing that we understand neurodiversity and that people can uh, be open about it. But like we've seen with other movements in history, such as the Pride movement, and where people have been different from the norm, there is also this darker side of humanity where there is a um, a risk to people who are being brave enough to disclose that they're different, that there is a fear that they may end up in the future at some point being discriminated against or paying a price for that bravery because there is another side of humanity that isn't accepting of difference. And I don't have a question here, more so just to say that this is a, a tension that I observe. And I just, I suppose the question is, I wonder as someone who is neurodiverse and is raising awareness about this, do you ever worry that being so vocal about this and being so open about it may come to bite you in the future or may lead to you not being able to experience things that you otherwise would have if you continued to mask your neurodiversity? What is the funniest about this question is that I actually suffered way more repercussions for speaking up before I was diagnosed and before I disclosed my condition. I used to be the classic person that enters a company and within a uh, very short time, they are uh, labeled as a troublemaker because I was pointing out things that weren't working or I was suggesting a better way of uh, dealing with them. At the time, I thought I was discriminated because I was a foreigner or a woman in a male-dominated environment because I was mainly around uh, engineers all the time and uh, <laughs> they, they took even longer than designed to uh, accept more women. However, like... Ultimately, I just understood that there's a journey that people need to take. And uh, whenever I try to fight for something, I, I try now to disclose the journey and take people with me rather than just pointing out what's wrong. It's an extra effort. So like we were saying earlier in this conversation, it does. it's not super fair that this uh, uh, that the um, NDs end up being the ones that Put the extra effort but then again it's also as long as it happens it's fine i reckon i i okay one thing that i will say is i don't know how comfortable i would have been disclosing my autism before i got head off in my title for a career perspective i actually 
I was diagnosed in August, but I got my title change only in January and I wasn't super public between August and January. It wasn't a long time to wait, to be fair, and I was still wrapping my head around it. So, but yeah, I don't think I would have felt comfortable in terms of future career. However, it does feel like there is a genuine interest uh, in most uh, woke companies, let's say. In most companies right now, there is a genuine interest in truly understanding and uh, um, appreciating the value of diversity. So I would say that we're doing some steps in the right direction. However, it seems to have hit more the recruitment uh, side of the industry than the actual work side of the industry. Especially, there's something quite funny here because the, the work of designers, of UXers actually, at in this day and age and in, in, in the context of product, is very often to argue for things. It's arguing for the customers, arguing for getting data and not making assumptions. And unfortunately, a lot of that ends up like your success in that ends up being about your ability to leverage uh, the best in people and avoid triggering the worst. I do think that when I'm successful at it, it's because I had to spend so much time learning about it, <laughs> learning how to do it. But it's something that in that sense, that doesn't discriminate uh, neurodiverse and neurotypical. Everyone has to do it. In, when you have uh, the classic triad of the lead engineer, the lead PM, and the lead designer in a room, and they're all trying to understand each other. They're all coming from a different place and almost speaking a different language. And at that moment, they might as well be uh, someone with autism, someone neurotypical, and someone with dyslexia. It's 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 a uh, it's about communication. So when I think of the ideal world. I don't think necessarily of a place where they, the conditions for the, the work environment for neurodiverse uh, or any type of diversity is improved, uh, because that would be a given if we were just able to consider individual people as that, as individuals with a different with a different upbringing, with a different background, with different belief system. And we we all learned tools like the ladder of inference and uh, just generally overcoming your own biases. And I think that we as UXers are in an incredibly good place for that because we have to do it every day for our customers. When you do a piece of UX research, you can't bring your own biases in, otherwise you're not doing a good job. What surprises me is how few people make the natural step of understanding that we just we should just do that with each other as well it's not just something that we reserve for our customers and this to me seems to be one of the keys to highly highly performing teams and organizations and i'm recalling now a, a highlight from my conversation with teresa torres that i posted recently on linkedin which just which went mental actually so many people were identifying with this post and basically in the video teresa is explaining exactly what you've talked about there that triad and people talking at cross purposes and that what's actually happening there is there's a failure to integrate perspectives there's a failure to step back and actually look at what it is that they're trying to achieve before they start pushing their own agendas and that to our earlier conversation around telling getting the story out there laid bare so that everyone can talk about the story that each of them are telling themselves doing that by actually visualizing and creating artifacts from our internal stories we can actually sit down in our teams and actually look at those together and that's actually how we start to integrate perspectives and can actually start making better decisions so this that seems to me to, to your point yeah right and but this isn't even necessarily specific to neurodiversity yeah, but it would be very helpful yeah, right. Just for everybody, just to embrace a way of working that's like this. And I, you've actually said something that you reminded me of that that I laughed actually out loud at about 10 o'clock when I was at night when I was preparing for this. I think my <laughs> wife thought I was watching comedy, but you, you said it. I'll just find it here. So you said something that I thought was hilarious, as I mentioned, which was, and I'll quote you now, find me a person 
neurodiverse or neurotypical who doesn't wish that they could disappear if suddenly 10 people around them start singing happy birthday. <laughs> Everyone has those preferences, whether they're saying it or not. Now, th that to me is, is it was, it was so funny, but you seem to be suggesting that you don't believe that neurodiverse people should be given special treatment as far as how they're communicated with by their managers. But now that I think back about what you said earlier about how hurtful it can be when managers don't understand things that you've previously disclosed, I'm not so sure about how, how I interpreted that statement. So the question therefore is like, what, what is the subtle, I'm trying to, what I'm trying to understand yeah. is I'm trying to grasp the subtleties that exist around what is just the way in which people, irrespective of neurodiversity, navigate the world and how that intersects with neurodiversity and therefore what is, what is the most appropriate way to navigate that if you're neurotypical? I think it's because I like to, I like to think far in the future to a world in which we don't even need to think about the differentiation and the titles uh, of neurotypical neurodiverse and which type of neurodiversity, because it doesn't really mean much. The point is the situation at hand. So for example, something that you were saying before, when people are talking and they don't understand each other and they start pushing for their own agenda, usually, I mean, I would say in most cases, it's it's one or two things, like especially when people get upset, they think that the other person is either being lazy or being prideful, having a lot of ego. And so they start just going against it. I actually have met very few people that were genuinely a little bit in love with their own ideas and uh, or people that really didn't feel like making an effort normally the truth is somewhere it's it's just somewhere that you can't comprehend so you make up the story in your own head because it's easier it's easier to make this like when you when you phone your uh your internet company and uh, and you're having a problem because you're having a problem with your broadband and the person on the phone is not being very helpful you start thinking the absolute worst things and this person on the other line maybe it's their first day or maybe they didn't sleep well maybe they're trying their best <laughs> um so in that sense i think what is hurtful to me even before way before i even knew what autism was was just to be judged by someone else's standards and that is something that would be hurtful for anyone for any reason. So I guess it doesn't make much of a difference. It's just about the, the core, the core concept, like the judgment, the assumptions that we make. And that's the part that I wish, I wish we didn't, I wish we never learned that. <laughs> I wish no one has ever taught us to jump to conclusions. One of the moments that I am not looking forward to, so I have a three and a half year old son, and as that moment in his life where he realizes that other people will judge him for what he says or how he behaves, and I'm not saying that he doesn't have free reign to do whatever he wants, all right? I'm the disciplinarian in our household, but just when our our young minds become aware that the views of other people and the judgment of other people can have quite a profound effect on how we choose to show up the following day. And that's the thing, that's one of the things, at least as a parent, that I am trying to prepare myself for and try to help him to understand what decisions or what choices are available to him when he becomes conscious of that. And I know I'm yeah. over-intellectualizing this and I'll have to meet him on his level. He's a small <laughs> human, right? But this, this um, conditioning that we spoke about, you know, the expectations society places upon us, how we choose to not express ourselves because of fear of judgment and, and, and punitive action being taken against us, it all seems to stem from a lack of ability to truly seek to understand each other. Yes. And yeah, there's, and I just think it's... Comfort. it's there, there's just comfort uh, in there's comfort in thinking that we're right 
there's comfort in mm. thinking that the way we are doing things is actually the right one. Everyone else when, is the idiot. Yeah. yeah, exactly. When in reality, what if ours is right, but also someone else's? Wouldn't that be great? There, then there are two ways of doing things, or 10 or 20, or maybe it doesn't matter. I, I do wish that we could take things at face value. If someone said something that's hurtful to me, it doesn't mean they wanted to hurt me. It just means that they said something that to me is hurtful. I could let them know and uh, chances are they'll apologize and not do it again. And it could be as simple as that. Yeah. And just affording ourselves the ability to make a choice in those moments where we feel our the, the hairs on the back of our neck start to stand up. You know when someone's getting under your skin and you, you you mentioned before sometimes you have difficulty sensing when when other people are feeling uncomfortable and I imagine that that would be challenging when when other people are starting to feel that. But people do have the the ability in those moments to choose how they respond. Yes. And we've observed and I think we touched on this earlier, like there's a lot of behavior on the, at the moment, probably always has been in the world where people don't give themselves the, um, the benefit of, of thinking a little bit more or intuiting a little bit more before they choose what to do next. Yeah. I think that the general consensus is if something, if they said something that hurt me, they are bad people who wanted to hurt me when it's actually, there's a massive grayscale in between those two intense. I do feel for anyone who enters our industry, not just our industry, I guess in general, I feel for all those people that come out of college where there was one set of rules and they were fairly declared um, and enter the world of offices and work and uh, and uh, hierarchies. And uh, first off, they, need to, they, they learn that that set of rules changes in every company, every manager, every every team, every person, <laughs> and you have to relearn it from scratch. And also that they learn that the set of behaviors that you're supposed to have or that you t- were taught to have, they're not going to be effective. They're, they were never based on uh, real life. It's it's really tricky. Yeah, half the job is learning learning how to navigate the other people in the organization, yeah. which is we are social beings and one of our benefits. I was speaking to my physio about this today and I, humans are so useless for so long. Like we, we're not much use until we're, I don't know, 20 years old. It takes mm-hmm. so long for us to learn how to do life. Uh, yet our major benefit is our ability to cooperate with each other. So as much as we've been talking today about people not doing a great job of seeking to understand what's going on for others and missing out on the ability to create something new or better than that they've had before by doing that, we are a, a fairly remarkable species in the in the sense that cooperation is actually what has enabled us to have this conversation today and all yes. the technology that has been created off the back of that it is a it is a wonderful thing but we're it's not all incredible. the same and i think i think Absolutely. that's the theme of today right we're not the same and even you've mentioned you've been very careful about describing your ne- neurodiversity and not suggesting that you know what's best for other people that are neurodiverse Absolutely. and i completely completely get that uh, something that i've been wondering about though is the in design specifically the way in which we run particular popular team-based workshops, design workshops, and whether or not these actually appropriately accommodate people's different communication preferences, irrespective of whether they're neurodiverse, but also, on the other hand, people that are neurodiverse and have a very definite preference because of the way their brain works as to how they learn and how they participate with others. Now, I... I understand you had an experience a few years ago running a design sprint and I think (laughs) you, yeah, is it running, ringing a bell? So I think you've got a really great story around that to tell. And I just want to leave that open to you now, just to, just to tell uh, me about that experience and and the the realization that you had uh, during or after that experience was over. Yes, that experience was really something. I kept thinking about it during the years. Well, first off, it was the first design sprint that I ran, at, at least full on like Google Ventures design sprint by the book with the with, with the set of tools that they give you, the initial presentation and everything. 
So I was already quite nervous, especially because I was at the time just a senior designer in a room with VPs, heads of department and uh, so on and so forth. But yes, what uh, what really surprised me was how I would never have thought that I could see people struggle so much with sketching, drawing, writing. Like I, I'm used to, uh, up to the, that point, I was used to seeing people that don't feel confident drawing because they think they don't draw well. Uh, same as uh, people not being comfortable with speaking in a room full of people because they think that they don't speak very well necessarily. And those are all little hurdles that eventually people figure out and, and just and just do it. That was the first time I saw a few adults <laughs> at senior people that I really respect and are really great at their jobs and, and really great people have basically an emotional breakdown over the idea of having to sketch and having to write tapped into all sorts of, I don't know exactly what, but it was very emotional for them. It's not just that they didn't, they didn't want to try to do the sketching part or uh, or they tried and then they got upset with it they they there were tears there was so much self doubt and they felt so vulnerable it, it was it was like we had asked them to like undress or something they felt really really vulnerable and it just hit me that you 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 can never know there really isn't a one size fit all Something that looks good on paper maybe works for 98% of the people, but not with all of them. Um, and I know this is very cliche, but I truly thought, because they cover everything in the book, right? They cover uh, all of the instances where they ran this workshop and someone wasn't super comfortable with drawing, so they did another thing or they paired up. When in reality, yes, on the, on the day I had to just suddenly improvise how am I going to deal with a situation where the person who's supposed to draw is now on a couch in another room and doesn't want to come back in? It did teach me a lot about just tuning with people, what they're comfortable with, and make it a truly safe space to say what they're not comfortable with and find an alternative because there is an alternative. There's always an alternative. I don't know if that answers. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Do you remember when, when you observe that person having that breakdown effectively and 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 their ability to contribute to the team take take me back then like how how were you feeling as the facilitator like how, just just what was going on for you when you realized that this was starting to fall apart so i was very conflicted because on the one hand this was a person that i was really looking forward to having the room because I really like them and I I thought they would have a lot to contribute and that they cared a lot about the project. When I saw them break down, I I had a lot of empathy and I felt really, really bad for them because I think that actually the reason why it was such an emotional reaction is that they didn't think they were going to do a good job, but they did care a lot about the project. So they they were feeling like everything was going out of control they they couldn't understand they had never been in a process like that they didn't know how to trust the process and that was my job as the facilitator to get them to trust the process however yes as, as the facilitator i was freaking out because <laughs> i was not imagining a situation like that unfolding and i've been told in the past that i have mixed reactions in emergencies i i'm usually very pragmatic but when the emerg the emergency is emotional pra pragmatic is not necessarily the good response <laughs> so me saying don't worry about it and uh just take take a piece of paper and scribble something was not helping also me saying don't worry we could just use the other people's contributions and not yours was also not helping uh, ultimately I, I remember i sat down with them and i just said i know this is really hard please trust the process the worst that can happen is that we don't get to a great solution and then we try something else afterwards 
it was just about like in the end the only thing i could think of doing was de-escalating like we're not in an operating room we are we're just a bunch of people trying to do our best uh it's 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 all okay we will solve this problem one way or another but yeah is this person yeah. more senior than you oh yeah oh yeah like quite yeah. a bit so this is Again, I'm not a therapist here, right? And I have no qualifications to talk about psychology, but it just strikes me as scary in some ways and rather emotional in others to see, like you've described, highly competent, really good at their job, individuals who care about the project that you were trying to facilitate to, to actually carry so much baggage, which I can only assume comes from, you know, their past and how and again, I'm making a huge leap here, how they may have grown up in their childhood, you know, the type of stories we start to tell ourselves, you know, as I was speaking about my son, that I'm conscious of him going to run up into that as well, that we bring this forward into our work and that really a pressure cooker environment like a design sprint, (laughs) the veneer that a lot of us, the armor that a lot of us carry around and the way we interact with others is actually very, very thin. Yeah. And even if you are a VP, they, I mean, this is going to sound cliched, they are humans too. And it doesn't necessarily take a lot of prodding at that armor for you to find a chink in it. And I suppose this story is a beautiful one in, in the sense that as the facilitator and also someone who's in a, you know, arguably lower status position overall in the organization, but in that moment, you were the, the higher status leader and you had to respond to what you were seeing unfolding. And I'm curious, after that experience, how has it changed the way you design the workshops and facilitate the experiences that you bring people together to create better solutions or to better understand problems? How have they changed? Definitely what has changed is the confidence with which I entered the room. Something that that situation really helped me understand is that when you're facilitating a workshop or a discussion, you have to position yourself as the highest leader in that room in that moment because you are the referee and there are rules to the game. And it's part of creating the safe space to declare those rules and show that you will get them respected. Otherwise, the place is not safe. If you say, if you say something, and if you if you put down a rule, if you say no phones, and then someone picks up the phone and you don't tell them off because they're a VP or whatnot, you just made it unsafe for everyone else. You just invalidated the rules of the whole game, and it's in no one's interest. So, it's quite a high level of responsibility. Or like the the most common scenario is letting people ramble too long and not interrupt them. When you're facilitating, if you are if you're time boxing something, that has to be respected and people will hate you for it for a moment. But it is in anyone in everyone's best interest. And you just have to like bring out your most arrogant persona, I guess. Uh, and, and just to be like, no, you need to stop talking now. <laughs> it's um, That's why those timers those timers are so useful because oh, yeah. you can go, Well, it's not me, it's just the timer. I <laughs> so know. Now we've got to move on. It's funny because that first time what I that first time what I used to do is I had a time timer and if it rang and people were still talking, I would just dial it back a little bit and then dial it back onto zero so it would rig again and then I I would start (laughs) doing it a bunch of times until they got the hint and I really wanted them to shut up but that's that's, sometimes people aren't very good at paying attention to social cues and it doesn't actually necessarily have to be a result of neurodiversity some people just 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 some people don't have any um any anything other than the fact that they don't like to be told what to do to 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 put that back to yeah i'm curious to 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 know like what what in design and your experience of working in the industry and the way in which we do things what isn't working well for people that are neurodiverse and i realize that that is a almost impossible question to answer given the wide variety of neurodiversity but what what are some of like 
what are some of the experiences maybe that you've had in the way in which we work in design that just don't work very well or need we need to be paying better attention to and maybe approaching the design of differently so that it's more inclusive of the different ways in which people uh, feel like they can bring their best self to the work? Well, I do have an answer to that because it doesn't really depend on neurodiversity. I just think it doesn't work quite well in general. And it's in our industry of designers, UXers, but also tech companies in general, I guess. The concept of leadership and seniority and the mismatch between those two concepts, which are very different concepts, we have not nailed that. Um, I and and I think this what this ends up doing is situations that are not fit or or even dangerous for everyone involved. I reckon what I mean specifically is calling senior management leadership. It's a title that I've seen in a bunch of places. And ultimately, I also started using because it's just easier that way, because if that's how everyone is calling it, sure, but it's misleading because it doesn't mean that all the decisions and ideas should come from that group. Technically, everyone can be leader. Everyone should be leader, especially as uh, UXers, if we don't bring our point of view and expertise, then why are we even there? So there is something about how we define what leadership is, what it means, and how we should decouple it from seniority. And also how we define seniority, uh, even that is something that I've been thinking about a lot in the past few years. Initially on the on the topic of neurodiversity, because I started thinking that a bunch of the qualities that um, that spontaneously I would think make someone more senior than someone else are actually based on soft skills and it's not very inclusive. Like the, the ability uh, mm. to create consensus among uh, a number of stakeholders, the ability to uh, jump into a room and own it and lead it, that's, that's something that to a certain flavor of neurodiverse people will never be accessible. However, it doesn't mean that they're not bringing an incredible value to the company. So how could we possibly account for that? And in a, in a smaller scale, uh, engineering is light years ahead with a very, very forked track between uh, uh, the managerial path and the individual contributor path. And in design, we're catching up with that as well. However, it's also not quite the same because then you start looking at the individual contributor's path and at the level of uh, principle or higher seniority, you start seeing things like um, public speaking, um, mentoring of large groups. Uh, and, and and so we're, we're back from scratch. How is it possible to get to a place where we have where we recognize the value that someone generates in a company associate that with seniority and decouple that from the preconcepts that we have of what seniority used to be very complex i don't think we'll necessarily find the answer to this in uh, the next <laughs> 10 years but it is something that i've been thinking about because uh, one of the most difficult things I see in designers is to understand what's their purpose, how are they contributing, how are they going to advance. And many people have put together a career framework that are a great start, but we're not quite there. And especially when it comes to the concept of uh, leadership, there are there are many leaders out there. By leaders, in this case, I'm using the term uh, to define senior managers, and hence why it's so confusing. <laughs> but yeah. there are many managers. The title, right? And and, yeah. and leadership is actually earned. Like there are there are leaders that have three years experience, but they just uh, they are just brilliant in the specific thing that they do. As well as there are people that have been 20 years in the industry who are not interested in leading, They're, they prefer executing, and that's also fine. There is, there is a, yeah, there is a big discrepancy between what historically 
a role is supposed to cover and what it actually covers. And it impacts culture very much, which impacts productivity. And yeah, I haven't seen anywhere where this is done particularly well. There is always some kinks and it's a very complicated answer. <laughs> and it's something that I hope in the rest of my career to help figure out. But I think it's going to have to be a team effort with a lot of other heads in the game. Well, Benny, I feel like that is an amazing place and a very impactful place to wind up our conversation today, neurodiversity and the way in which we approach the design of our career pathways in our organizations seems like a really worthy challenge for people to think about. And also from very, very much just making the the most of an uh, of a under uh, a misunderstood and underappreciated source of human potential, whether or not those people are neurodiverse or whether or not they just don't want to be on stage being the public speaker. I think it is definitely time for a rethink. So, very much appreciate you sharing that thought to close. This has been such a great conversation, Benny. It's certainly given me many many things to think about. I really want to say thank you for so being so generous with sharing your stories and insights with me today. Day. Absolutely, it was. This was a pleasure. Honestly, it was a it was a great conversation. And uh, to anyone who happens to listen to it and uh, take something away from it, uh, just hope it was helpful in some way. I have no doubt, and it's been a pleasure for me as well, Benny. If people want to find out more about you and the work that you're doing and the things that you are passionate about, what is the best way for them to do that? It's a good question. I'm reworking my website, just as uh, as designers do every couple of years or so. Uh, so LinkedIn, LinkedIn <laughs> would be it. <laughs> LinkedIn is the record. Perfect. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Thank you, Benny. I will make sure that I put a link to your LinkedIn profile on the show notes and also to if you're listening out there people you'll find all of the other things that we've talked about today and they're very detailed chapters in fact Benny there's one of the things that you mentioned twice there which had recently come up for, for me in a conversation with another guest which is the ladder of inference and I feel like that's a really important framework for mm. thinking about thinking uh, that I'll be putting in the show notes Amazing. as well yeah, oh, such a great framework. Really appreciate you mentioning it. If you enjoyed the show, people, and you want to hear more great conversations like this with world-class leaders in UX design and product management, don't forget to leave a review on the podcast. Subscribe both to the podcast. There's also a YouTube channel that you can find the videos of these episodes on as well. And also pass the show along to someone else that you feel would get value from these conversations. If you want to reach out to me, you can also find my LinkedIn profile at the very, very, very very bottom of the show notes hidden amongst them and there's also a link through to my website which is thespaceinbetween.co.nz that's thespaceinbetween.co.nz and until next time keep being brave hey, hey, hey.